Well, if you would, take your Bibles and open them up to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 8. Not far into the New Testament, in terms of the number of books, well into the New Testament in terms of pages, past the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then you arrive at the book of Acts, and we will read together in just a moment, Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. So we'll begin in verse 26, and we'll read through the remainder of the chapter. And when you arrive there, because this is the word of our God, you are the people of God, this is the Lord's day after all. If you are able, would you please stand for the reading and the receiving by God's grace of his word. Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. Luke wrote, as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit, these words. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. I don't know about you, but one of the more encouraging stories 
for me to hear from time to time and from others is how they came to know and treasure Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior over their life. We call this in Christianese, giving personal testimony. I remember coming to the Lord at, a, at an age around 17 or so and being asked to share my testimony. What was meant by that is, tell others how you came to know the Lord Jesus. And one of the reasons I enjoy hearing another believer's testimony is because testimonies remind me of the rich diversity in the body of Christ. I mean, just consider with me for just a moment the diversity in this room if we were to pass a microphone around this morning. And don't worry, we're not going to do that. If we were to pass a microphone around this morning and we asked you, if, if you do indeed know the Lord, how is it that the Lord revealed himself to you? Tell us a bit about the story of the Spirit of Christ bearing testimony to the truthfulness of the gospel and the wealth of the gospel. How did you come to know and treasure Jesus? You would hear a diversity of stories. And so that's one of the reasons why I love hearing personal testimonies. But there is another reason why I enjoy hearing personal testimonies, and it is because in the midst of the diversity, those personal testimonies highlight our shared story. Not really a story that centers on us or a story that centers on our past, but a story that centers on the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and promised future return of Jesus Christ. In the midst of personal testimonies, at least if they're Christian, after all, in the midst of that diversity, we find the same central story. Jesus Christ rescuing sinners. So for some, coming to treasure Christ was indeed a dramatic and abrupt experience through which Christ kind of interrupted their life of overt ungodliness and immorality. And to be honest, right, as evangelicals, we tend to be fond of these stories. Perhaps you've heard the statement said. Perhaps you've even spoken the statement. You've got to hear their testimony. Their testimony is really good. As if to imply there are good testimonies and bad <laughs> testimonies or less good testimonies. But these certainly are a part of it, right? In this room, some of you would tell the story of growing up apart from Christ and living a pagan lifestyle, right? And doing everything in your power to oppose the purpose of God in your life, resisting the Holy Spirit. And then that moment came where the shackles fell off and you rose in the power of Christ, went forth and you followed Christ to still language of Charles Wesley. But for others of you, for others, becoming a believer happened more subtly. This is often true for those who are raised in Christian homes. In fact, if you were asked to tell the story of the day you came to know the Lord Jesus, you wouldn't know how to answer it. There was a movement not that long ago in evangelicalism that so emphasized the day. And if you couldn't identify that day, of course, your salvation was suspect. I would, I would take issue with that approach. For some of you, you just never remember a time when God was not near to you in grace and in mercy. And that's a kindness of the Lord. 
But let me encourage you, if that's your testimony, you moving out of spiritual death in which you were conceived into spiritual life in Christ, that story is no less miraculous. What matters, of course, is that you're trusting Jesus Christ today, that Christ is living in you today, that Christ is being formed in you today. But you can see, of course, on the continuum, these two different categories of testimony, right? Both of which, of course, highlight, however, the centrality of Jesus Christ, no matter the story, coming to believe in Christ is always a supernatural story of God's rescuing grace. Well, in the book of Acts, if you've been with us lately, you know that most of the conversions we have observed have involved multitudes, crowds coming to know and trust Jesus. For example, Acts chapter 2, verse 41, we are told that 3,000 people believed the gospel and were added to the church after Peter preached his Pentecost sermon. How about that? 3,000 people. Then in Acts chapter 4, verse 4, the number of men in the church grew to about 5,000, which likely meant something like there were ten to 15,000 people in the church at the time. In Acts chapter 5, verse 14, more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Just last week, we observed how the Lord rescued crowds in Samaria, Acts Chapter 8, verse 6, and verse 12, through the ministry of this Philip that we're going to talk about even this morning. Well, in Acts chapter 8, our text this morning, verses 26 to 40, we learn, don't miss this, we learn that the sovereign Lord over heaven and earth does not merely orchestrate the salvation of multitudes. He doesn't merely oversee sovereignly the salvation of crowds. He actually sovereignly orchestrates the salvation of individuals. Individuals like you. Individuals like me. Individuals like this Ethiopian eunuch in some obscure desert where the Spirit of the Lord leads a man named Philip. Put another way, God is not merely concerned with crowds, church family. He's deeply concerned with individual people. Deeply concerned. And more specifically, in the case of our text this morning, he is even concerned with the outcast. Someone who's on the outside. And we're going to unpack that a bit more as we move along. So if you're taking notes, here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through this story through which we see God's concern and commitment to individual people, people like the Ethiopian eunuch. We're going to walk through this story by asking and answering four, count them, four questions. How about that? I know. Mind blown. Mind blown. What's gotten into him today? Each of these questions highlights a significant part of the story, okay? So really just, these questions just serve to accentuate or highlight a portion of the story, and these are central facets of the story as it unfolds. Here are the four questions. First of all, we're going to ask and answer the question, where did Philip go? This matters in the text. Where did he go? We asked the question even, where did he go last week? We're going to ask it again this week. Where did Philip go? 
go. Secondly, we're going to ask and answer the question, to whom did Philip go? Where did he go and to whom did he go? Third, third question we're going to ask and answer this morning, about whom did Philip speak? Now, doubtless, many of you can answer this question right now. But we're going to look a bit more detail at the text and how the text itself unfolds this. About whom did Philip speak? And then finally, after asking where did Philip go and to whom did he go and about whom did he speak, we are going to conclude our time together asking this question. How did the eunuch respond? How did the eunuch respond Okay, those are the four questions we're going to ask and answer. Uh, If you're a younger worshiper in the room, our children in the room, our young theologians in the room, I want you to look for a couple of items, okay? If you can follow along with those four larger questions, praise God. But I want to give you a couple of smaller items that you can look for in the text. And parents, grandparents, guardians, use these. Use these if they serve to help ignite conversation with your younger worshiper. First, younger worshiper, look for this. Notice what the Ethiopian eunuch was reading. Notice what the eunuch was reading. Okay? And do your best to be as specific as possible. As specific as possible. What was he reading? Secondly... After the eunuch believed the gospel, what did he ask Philip to do? What did he request? He asked the question. What was he asking Philip to do? Okay, so what was he reading and what did he ask Philip to do after he believed the gospel? All right? Well, let's begin with the first general question in our outline. Where did Philip Go. Look with me, if you would, at verses 26 and the very beginning of 27. So verse 26 in its entirety and the first part of verse 27. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south. Some translations translate this at noon. By the way, this is not confusing at all, right? The same Greek phrase means at noon and to the south. (laughs) Clear, isn't it? Some of you think, if I could just learn Greek, the original languages, it would clear so much up for me. Not always. So here, and by the way, I do think south is the best. Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Notice, this is a desert place, and he rose and went. Now, I'm less concerned, by the way. I'm less concerned that you remember Gaza and more concerned that you notice how Luke describes the area. He describes it as a desert place. Don't miss that. Another way we could translate this is a wilderness. So the Spirit of God leads Philip. Of course, it's, we're told here in the text that it's an angel of the Lord, a messenger from the Lord, leads Philip to this place that is described as a desert or a wilderness. In other words, this is not an area characterized by life and vitality, but by lifelessness. Not much lives in a desert. I remember, I think I may have told you this before, if you've been coming here for some time, forgive me. You know, the longer I'm in ministry, I can just retell the same things. 
It's the way it works. You earn the right to do so the longer you're in ministry, okay? I've not been in ministry as long as some in the room. They have more right. I won't point out anyone in particular. They have more right to share. Pastor Tim, um, (laughs) the same illustrations. But I remember the time when a friend of mine went on a road trip and uh, we were actually just doing various things. It was before I was married, by the way, to Tana and I was, I was soon to get married and my wife just perked up. Now she's looking at me with her eyes wide of thinking, oh, here he goes again. Uh, it was before we were married and uh, I was living in California. She was living in Texas and um, I was eager, of course, to get married. But this good friend of mine um, who is actually, um, actually serves the Lord through the IMB now, um, he and I went on a road trip and we decided to pass through Death Valley Desert. If you've ever been to Death Valley Desert, there's a reason it is called <laughs> Death Valley Desert. And I'll never forget this, or at least I haven't yet. Um, he said to me at one point, he said, you know what? I think if we turn here, it'll be a shortcut. <laughs> I ceased trusting him after that. To this day, I I no longer trust him. I love him. Don't trust him. (laughs) At least not with directions. And uh, we took took the right. And, you know, things grow in your mind, right? In my mind, it took us seven weeks to find our way. (laughs) You know, in my mind, the story ends with us, no car, crawling, clothes, just worn, and and, uh, finally making it to a small puddle of water and drinking from the puddle, you know, something like that. It wasn't quite that severe. But I do remember watching as we drove and drove and drove and came close to running out of gas. So this is true. He and I even reflected on it. We were almost on an empty tank by the conclusion of this, wondering, will there be any signs of civilization? (laughs) And then thinking, okay, we've got a cooler. If we break down, we've got a long walk ahead of us and we're in Death Valley Desert. God told us not to come here through the title, and here we are, right? Nothing is alive. (laughs) We got off the path, literally then, figuratively right now, getting back on the path. That's what I think of when I think about a desert if you've been through Death Valley. This This is a place like that. Not much is alive here. Not much alive. This is an obscure place, a place really characterized by lifelessness. Things aren't growing. Things aren't flourishing in this this desert. And yet, and yet, if you know your Old Testament, you know that the Old Testament is replete with promises that God would someday provide life amid the barrenness of the desert. By the way, this is especially true in the book of Isaiah. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. What book was the eunuch reading? Isaiah. Isaiah is, is replete with these promises that God someday would provide life in the desert. In fact, I'll give you one of them, Isaiah 43, 19. Isaiah 43, 19 says this, Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. I don't think it's an accident, by the way, that Luke doesn't tell us they left the desert before the eunuch is baptized. God is providing a way in the wilderness and water in the desert 
for this Ethiopian eunuch. But we're to get this. Luke wants us to get this. This is a desert. This is the fulfillment of God's merciful promises to provide life in the midst of the barrenness of a desert. So where did Philip go? Very simply, to the desert. To the desert. Secondly, to whom did Philip go? To whom did he go? Notice verses 27 and 28. And he rose and he went. And there was an Ethiopian a eunuch. Very simply, that's, where he, that's to whom he went. An Ethiopian eunuch. There was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah, or if you're from some parts of the world, Isaiah. I listened to a sermon even this past week from Sinclair Ferguson, who's Scottish. Can't ever get over it, you know, parts of the world, pronouncing it Isaiah. I think it's Isaiah. I am from America after all. So Philip goes to an Ethiopian eunuch who was a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. And by the way, this, this name Candace, it's probably not her name at all. It's probably a title. Something like Pharaoh or Caesar. In fact, there's an early church commentator that mentions this and even to the present there are a number of commentators that suggest that this probably wasn't the queen's name as much as it was her title. Now this eunuch may have been a Gentile who practiced Judaism. Why do I say that? Well, he had come to Jerusalem to worship and he was reading Isaiah. So it's likely, I think, although Luke doesn't tell us, it's likely through these intimations in the text that uh, this particular eunuch was indeed a Gentile, but a Gentile who was known as a God-fearer, someone who was trying, attempting to practice Judaism and fear the one true and living God of Judaism. And so he's coming from Jerusalem, having worshiped, and he's reading from the Old Testament, at least as we understand it. They would have simply referred to it as the Scripture. What is clear, however, about this man is that he was an outcast. He was an outcast on two accounts. On two accounts. First, he was from Ethiopia, which broadly meant he was a Gentile, right? But even more particular, throughout the Old Testament, the name for Ethiopia is is not often a flattering name. The name in the Old Testament for Ethiopia, by the way, is Cush. Cush, C-U-S-H. Most often, that's a reference to Ethiopia, though I don't think always there are some exceptions. In Genesis chapter 6, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 10, it's verse 6, we learn that Ethiopia was inhabited by one of the sons of Ham, who was one of the sons of Noah. And if you know much about Noah's sons, Ham is the one who dishonored his father. Shem, Ham, and Japheth are the three sons of Noah. Ham is the one who dishonored his father. Additionally, additionally, the idolatrous Canaanites, the ones who are going to be judged throughout the Old Testament, they're judged as the inhabitants of Canaan. God uses Israel as an instrument of his judgment against the Canaanites. These idolatrous Canaanites descended from Ham as well. So to be from Ethiopia, it wasn't always a positive thing throughout the Old Testament. So this man was an outcast for that reason, but there's another reason why he was an outcast. He was a eunuch. 
He was a eunuch. In portions of the ancient world, eunuchs were considered neither male nor female, really. I don't misunderstand me. Don't, don't read kind of the modern gender revolution into that statement. By the way, there are some commentators that try to do so. That can get a bit silly. People understood that they were male, but they had lost something that was essentially male to the ancient. And so they never really fit into a category, a group. They were always, in some sense, an outcast. Additionally, even the Old Testament, if you're with us during our Deuteronomy series, I know you will remember this. Deuteronomy 23 Verse 1, you could probably quote it, but I won't have you do that. It'll be mayhem in the place as you're all shouting the verse. Eunuchs were listed, actually, as those who were forbidden from entering the temple of God. If you were a eunuch, you could not enter God's presence manifested in the temple. Don't miss that. Now remember what Luke has been doing as he's carried along by the Spirit of God in the book of Acts. There has already been this massive controversy between the church and the Jewish leaders about what? The temple. And God's people who have trusted in Jesus Christ have come to believe that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the temple. He is God's presence among God's people. It's no accident here that just after that controversy, we have a eunuch. One who, in the words of Deuteronomy 23, could not enter the temple. And so, for these couple of reasons, one, he was from Ethiopia, two, he was a eunuch, he was an outcast. Now, before we answer our third question, about whom did Philip speak, I want you to understand the uh, significance of the book of Isaiah a bit more. Uh, With reference to this particular man, I'm going to mention a couple of passages. You can jot this, this down. You don't have to turn there. I'm not going to turn there. I've got these right here in my notes. I'll mention them to you, perhaps quote them as well, or read these texts. In Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 10 and 11. Again, remember, from what book was the eunuch reading? Isaiah, in Isaiah 11, 10 and 11, Isaiah wrote these words. In that day, that is this this future day through which God would restore his people, in that day, the root of Jesse, Uh the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire. And his resting place shall be glorious. Verse 11. In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from, now don't miss this, Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Ethiopia. That's Isaiah 11, verses 10 and 11. Additionally, God had declared in Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 5, Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 5, these words. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, 
who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house. Don't miss this. I will give in the future, in my house, in my presence, in my temple, and within my walls, a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Those of you who are older in the room without explanation can understand the illusion there. Your name will not be cut off from my presence. This is the book from which the eunuch was reading. There's a lot going on in the text. I had to show you some of those references. There are many more, but those are a few. So to whom did Philip go? He went to this Ethiopian eunuch who was essentially an outcast. Nevertheless, who also was the subject of many promises throughout the Old Testament and in particular in Isaiah. So, bit of a recap. Where did Philip go? To the desert. To whom did Philip go? The Ethiopian eunuch, an outcast separated from God's presence. Third, about whom did Philip speak? About whom did Philip speak? Well, the Spirit of God instructed Philip as the story unfolds to go over and join the eunuch's chariot. Upon hearing the eunuch reading from Isaiah, by the way, by the way, uh, the ancients most often read out loud. This is how you would typically read. There were some that read quietly, but people were often amazed if you read quietly. That you had, you had the skill to retain the information as you read quietly. In fact, this is, a, this is a, we're way over here at this point, but it's related to a bit in the text, right? Augustine comments on a man named Ambrose. Ambrose influenced Augustine as his pastor. And uh, one of the comments Augustine makes about Ambrose is that he read silently. We're used to that now. They weren't as used to it then. So this, how, how would he hear? How would he hear the eunuch reading? Because he was reading out loud. He was reading the text out loud. So upon hearing the eunuch back here, upon reading the eunuch, I'm sorry, the eunuch reading, rather, from Isaiah, Philip asked him this question. Do you understand what you're reading? Do you understand it? And I want you to notice verse 31. And he said, <clears throat> how can I? That's an interesting response, isn't it? How can I unless someone guides me? And then he invited Philip to come up and to sit with him. By the way, this is the standard process for coming to understand the word of God. It's the standard process for coming to understand what the Word of God is actually teaching. In our circles, we emphasize the importance of personal Bible study, and we should, we should. However, we come to understand what we have been taught. And the primary way God teaches us is through other godly people. It's the primary way He teaches us. In fact, more times than not, you know, I've, I've often thought things like this in my past, especially at an early spiritual age, as it were, reading the word of God. I, I've often thought, well, you know, I, I got this belief from reading the Bible, and that's true, but I was also being taught how to read the Bible. I was being taught how to understand Scripture. Brothers and sisters, when, when John writes, you have no need for anyone to teach you, 
What he's saying is that it is always the Holy Spirit who teaches you, but the Holy Spirit teaches you by means of human instruments. Because what's ironic about John writing this in 1 John? He's teaching you. You have no need for anybody to teach you. And yet, John, you're teaching us. He, he cannot mean that God doesn't use humans. Humans are God's chosen instrument in his mercy to instruct us. This is why group Bible study is so rich. This is why we gather together on the Lord's Day to study God's word together. This is why we, we often trust teachers of Scripture to expound for us the mysteries of God through the text of Scripture. So it is here. How can I understand unless someone teaches me? By the way, how about that for a lob? You know? You imagine walking, walking down the road and hearing someone read from Isaiah 53. We'll talk about that in just a second. And then saying to them, do you understand what you're reading? And them saying, well, how can I unless someone <laughs> teaches me? Hard to mess that one up. Yeah. Maybe. I probably could give it justice anyway. Messing it up, that is. But this is where Philip steps in and serves as an instrument of God's instruction and God's Mercy, And as I mentioned, the passage of scripture from which the eunuch was reading was Isaiah 53. In particular, Luke quotes from verses 7 and 8. This is probably just a portion of the text from which he was reading. Notice verses 32 and 33 in our text. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. Verse 33, in his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And I want you to notice that the eunuch asks the, I think, the most important question in Bible study. The most important question is asked by the eunuch. In verse 34, he does not ask about what does the prophet say this? He asks, about whom does the prophet say this? Who is the person about whom the prophet speaks? Not what is the thing or even fundamentally the event about which the prophet speaks. Who is the person about whom Scripture speaks. What a question. Now look with me at verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this Scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And so Philip, what does he do? He begins with Isaiah 53. And notice that's what Luke tells us. He doesn't stop with Isaiah 53. He begins with Isaiah 53. And in a similar way to what we find in Luke chapter 24, as Jesus did to his disciples on the road to Emmaus, and then after that to his disciples gathered together, Philip walks through the scriptures bearing testimony to Jesus Christ. He tells the story of the life, death, resurrection, 
ascension, promised future return of Jesus according to the scriptures. That's what Philip does in the text. And doubtless, Philip shares that any and all who repent of their sins trusting in Christ are forgiven through the work of Christ. So Luke doesn't share with us all of the details here, but if we read this alongside of Luke 24, volume 1, where Jesus does this same thing, we learn in Luke 24, verse 47, that even the Old Testament bears witness to all those who trust in Christ will be saved and God's people are to go out and proclaim this message to a world in desperate need of being restored to a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. By the way, I think it's also likely that part of this exposition of scripture, I wish I could have heard it in a similar way. I wish I, I, wish I could have heard Christ's explanation in Luke 24. But in this explanation, doubtless, Philip included baptism. After all, what accounts for this eunuch all of a sudden? Saying, aha, there's water. What prevents me from being baptized? Unless Philip had explained to him. I think that's precisely what took place in this encounter. So very simply, about whom did Philip speak? He spoke about Jesus. And don't miss this, Jesus according to the scripture. Jesus in the text of the word of God, including Isaiah 53, where we find that God would someday send this one who would suffer for the sins of God's people and through his suffering, humiliation, and death, God would rescue his people. But he didn't stop there. He continued to unpack the wealth of the Old Testament scriptures, all of which bore witness to Jesus Christ. By the way, what is the role or the function of the pastor in the pulpit? I would suggest to you that the role of the pastor in the pulpit is simply to proclaim Jesus from all of scripture. It's really that simple. What is fundamentally a Christian sermon? One focused on the person and work of Jesus Christ unpacked in the relevant text being talked about. And so the pastor ought to consistently preach Christ from any and every text throughout Scripture. Additionally, church family, what are you to do? What are you to do in response to hearing your pastor proclaim Jesus according to Scripture, you are to go and proclaim this same Jesus according to Scripture. And we've seen this time and time again in the book of Acts. But the word of God is proclaimed. Jesus Christ is declared. And then those who believe the message go and declare the same Christ. So on and so forth. In fact, this isn't in the text. This is talked about in the second half of the second century by a man named Irenaeus. Irenaeus was a pastor in Lyon. And in one of his works, a work known as Against Heresies, his third book, he talks about this Ethiopian eunuch. Now, again, this isn't in the text, but it is something that was passed on 
as Christians talked about this. And Irenaeus said that this Ethiopian eunuch they knew had actually become a missionary in Ethiopia after hearing, believing the gospel that Philip preached. This shouldn't surprise us. This shouldn't surprise us at all because that's precisely what God is calling all of us to do. To hear Christ preached from the scriptures, to believe Christ as he is presented in the scriptures, and to go and proclaim Christ according to the scriptures. This is the calling of every single one of you who trusts in Jesus Christ, and it is indeed the calling of this Ethiopian eunuch. It was the calling of Philip. Finally, we'll ask and answer our final question this morning. The final question is, how did the eunuch respond? And we've already talked a little bit about that. Let's look at this in a bit more detail. Look at verses 36, 37, 38, and 39. Beginning in verse 36, as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? By the way, that's verse 36. Notice it's likely in your text that the next verse is what number? Verse 38. Now, I'm not a mathematician. Some of you teach math. I know what follows 36. And it's not here in my text. We'll talk about that in just a second. So the ESV moves from verse 36 to verse 38, which by the way, those numbers were added much later, okay? Verse 38, and he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, by the way, notice they go down into the water. They come up out of the water to, with all the love in my heart for my brothers and sisters who affirm infant baptism, I just don't think it holds up to the text. They are going into the water for baptism. And they're coming up out of the water after baptism. Also, there's this beautiful imagery. They descend into the water. They ascend out of the water. We participate in baptism in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's a lot here. There's a lot here. Now, again, there are good brothers and sisters who disagree with what I just said. That's okay. They're wrong. And if they had this pulpit right now, they would say the same thing about me and we would continue in fellowship until they're proven wrong when Jesus comes back, okay? (laughs) I can say it in fun. So, let's look again. I stopped in the middle of the text, I think. Philip, the eunuch, he baptized in verse 39. They went, when they came up, there it was, when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. (laughs) Doesn't seem typical, does it? Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. He disappeared. And the eunuch saw him no more. Now, I don't know how long it took the eunuch to go on his way after this. But eventually, he went on his way rejoicing, the text tells us. And don't miss... Don't lose sight of this. The the, the eunuch's question, what prevents me from being baptized, also betrays an awareness the eunuch had. There were things that prevented him from entering God's presence prior to Christ. Because he was a eunuch, 
could not enter God's presence. That's one of the reasons I think why he asks the question, what prevents me from being baptized? Of course, the implication is that now in Christ, nothing prevents him. Nothing prevents him from entering into God's presence through faith in Christ, symbolized in baptism. As I mentioned, if you were following along in the ESV, or, by the way, one of several other English translations, we noted that there is no verse 37. Now, it's likely that your translation says something there in a footnote or an asterisk. After the eunuch's question to Philip, what prevents me from being baptized, some manuscripts, and we have a wealth of manuscripts, by the way. We can't get into all this right now. We won't. Maybe a class another time, another day. Some manuscripts and a couple of church fathers, by the way, Irenaeus is one of them, include the following. After after the eunuch says, what prevents me from being baptized? They include this. And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he, that is the eunuch, replied, and I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so some, some manuscripts have this. Uh, the King James Version has this. I think the, the New King James Version as well. And perhaps even the Holman Christian Standard Bible, if you have the Holman Christian Standard, I believe it has it. Um, but not many more. It's my understanding that this, is, this was not a part of the original text. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. I certainly think it's assumed in the text, right? We said that. I think it's assumed. I think it's most likely that this was a later scribal edition. And why would you have added this? Well, just to clarify, you were commenting. Moreover, it does demonstrate that the early church believed that there ought to be a clear confession of faith in Christ prior to baptism. It does demonstrate that. Perhaps it was in the original text, perhaps not. I don't think much gets changed. I don't think, however, that it was in the original text. And as a result, I think the English Standard Version alongside a host of other English translations have chosen correctly. You can disagree and that's just fine. So how did the eunuch respond ultimately? He responded with faith in Christ and baptism. He responded with faith and baptism. After Philip baptizes the eunuch, the spirit carries Philip away so that he can continue to preach the gospel in other areas all the way up to Caesarea. So he traces all the way up north along the Mediterranean Sea to Caesarea. However, notice the end of verse 39. We mentioned this a moment ago. The eunuch went on his way rejoicing. Why is he rejoicing? Again, a man who had previously known what it was to be prohibited from really being a member of God's people and God's family with full rights had now become a member of God's people and God's family with full rights through Christ. That's why he went about Rejoicing. As one commentator has observed, the example of the Ethiopian eunuch demonstrates no one is excluded from God's family on the basis of who they are or what they have done or what has been done to them. 
No one is excluded on the basis of who they are or what they have done or what has been done to them. Friends, this is, this is the best news possible. The best news possible is that because of the incarnation and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter who you are. It does not matter fundamentally what you have done. I suspect what you have done is very similar to what the rest of us have done. We've sinned against God. It doesn't matter fundamentally what has been done to you. You may have immense pain in your past because of the way others have treated you. Maybe, hmm, maybe that extends all the way back to early childhood. This Ethiopian eunuch, we're not told all the details, but it's very possible that this was done to him as a young child. It's very possible that he didn't choose this. It was chosen for him. And there are people in this room that didn't choose their past experiences, hurtful experiences. They were chosen for you. The good news of this Ethiopian eunuch, the good news of the gospel is that no matter who you are, what you have done or what's been done to you, Christ offers you membership in his family with full rights. Full rights as a son or a daughter on account of the work of Jesus Christ. So come to him. Come to him in faith if you are weary and burdened and he will give you rest. Are you not the person you should be? Join the club. We're not either. We're not the people we ought to be. Have you done things you are ashamed of? Join the club. So have we. So has the pastor who is standing in this pulpit. Have things been done to you that you wish you could forget? So it is with the rest of us who have been and are being made new by a merciful, gracious God who doesn't erase those experiences. Somehow, in his mysterious and gracious sovereignty, he doesn't erase them, but he eclipses them with his mercy. Those heinous things that we had experienced, as heavy as they are, God's word promises us someday, Not that they're erased, but they're eclipsed by the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's the promise of the gospel. So trust in the one who acted on your behalf, who did what you could not do, who offers rescue to you this morning and find life and peace and access to God through him. If you would like to talk more about what it means to trust in Christ, if you'd like to talk more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have protests 
about what we've just shared. We would love to have the conversation with you. After the service, take a left as you exit this room. And on the right-hand side out there, there is that room called Crossroads, clearly labeled above the entrance. Go in there and have a conversation with one of our elders who would love to talk with you and perhaps even if you'll allow him to pray with you and come alongside of you. Maybe even by God's grace, we will learn to treasure and trust this Savior who offers every one of us through faith the privilege of being a son or a daughter with full rights and full privileges. Well, if we were to share our personal testimonies or how Christ intervened in our life and rescued us, as I mentioned earlier, there would be a beautiful diversity. A beautiful diversity. On the other hand, each one of our stories is quite like the others. It really is. It's quite like the others because our stories are not so much about us, and that's good news. They're not so much about us. They're about the one who rescues us. It is the same God who provides the same grace through the same Savior, Jesus Christ, for sinners estranged from his presence. So, in 1779, a sinner rescued by this same grace of God in Christ wonderfully summarized our shared story. And the name of the man was John Newton. Consider the words he wrote in closing, just the first part. Amazing grace. Many of you know this. How sweet the what? Sound. That saved a wretch like me. Here's our story. I once was, but now am, was, but now I. That's our story, Christians. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the story you have made our own through Jesus Christ. The story of this Ethiopian eunuch is our story. We were estranged from your presence, ashamed of who we are, ashamed of what we had done, and perhaps even ashamed of what had been done to us. And in Christ Jesus, you rescued us. You gave us the privilege of becoming sons and daughters of yours. So, Father, we worship you, and we pray that day by day we would learn more and more to treasure this glorious story, this glorious gospel, and that you would empower us to live as the people we already are in Christ, people who have been rescued. We pray this in the name of Christ and with great boasting and confidence in Christ and all God's people said, amen.